Well, good morning. I'm uh, Coach Hugh Freeze. Just want to welcome you here. <laughs> There's a pastor friend of mine out in the uh, reservoir, and he texts me at 4 a.m. On, on, uh, on Easter, on Easter Sunday, 4 a.m. So I got him back this morning. I text him super early, and I said, uh, you go ahead and have a pep rally for Ole Miss. I'm just going to preach the Bible here today at, at, uh, at Fondren Church. So, yeah. I love everybody. Y'all know that, right? I love everybody. I really do. Last night, I was driving home late from out of town, out of state, almost in Texas. It was outside of Shreveport, actually, and just driving back, and it got aggressive. The drivers got aggressive, okay, and the weather got aggressive, and I don't know if y'all have this on your phone. I don't think I signed up for it, but there's an alert, the emergency alert, flash flood warning until 1.15 a.m. for the following parishes or counties or something and it, it scared me, man. I was, you know, I was driving aggressive, or others were driving aggressive. I was trying to drive defensive, I should say. Uh, and I rarely do this, but hands 10 and 2. Y'all do that? Just hands 10 and 2. It's raining and a lot of traffic and trucks doing their thing. And I've seen some of you drive. You don't drive 10 and 2. You drive more like 5 and finger. Um, I've seen you. And yeah, I said it. I said it right here in church. You know who you are. Well, good morning to you. So glad that you came. I know we're battling with uh, Ole Miss coach in town and Super Bulldog weekend up there and a lot going on, but so glad that you're here. And I pray that God will use this message and this series. All preachers, I think, are alike in the sense of they don't want you to judge them or it by one message, but by a series. And we're in this series called Hard Questions. And let me say this, uh, just a good educational point for, for some of you. The most common teaching method of Jesus he would teach truth as he responded to questions, and that's what we're doing. We've, I've tabulated uh, your questions, and I'm so grateful. I think any organizational leader can tell you what I can tell you. You make a call sometimes, you, you do a push, you promote something, and it's crickets, or there's just a little response, and it was really, you guys stunned me, and you surprised me when we just made one or two calls for, for questions, and you guys just flooded me, and I'm so uh, grateful for that. Some of your questions were just uber specific and we'll try to do our best to come around those questions that you have but the, we've tabulated these big ones and we're going to be tackling them um, this morning we're going to look at something uh, really heavy this is our second question that we're taking in this six-week stretch and it was your fifth most popular question honestly um, I'm surprised I'm surprised that it made the the top six if you will uh, the questions only get harder by the way I sent a friend, you know how you're doing emoticons or whatever on your phone? I sent a friend a message. The questions, they get harder. I did that face like, like that, right? But they do, they get tougher. But last week we looked at, are we living in the end times? And this morning, here's the question. Is suicide an unforgivable sin? It's a reality. And what I want to say to you this morning if you're here and you've been touched directly by this subject, truly, it's not a cliche, you are not alone. And you are not alone in this church family. You're not alone in this room today. It's a growing reality. It's sort of the unspoken, unmentionable, undiscussable, but it's a growing reality. Um, over the last 10 years, the suicide rate for uh, folks from ages 35 to 65 has risen 30%. The demographic that has grown the most, 50-year-old men. It's jumped by 50%. 
In America, every 17 seconds, someone decides to end their life. Here's a stunner for you. In America today, more people die by suicide than in automobile accidents. It's a growing reality, and for some of us, it's a very painful and profound personal reality. In its wake, people are left feeling very visceral, very emotional, very real feeling of no one was prepared. Nobody knows what to do. No one knows how to respond to this situation. My first thought where it ever affected me personally was one night with friends. I was doing what single guys do. We were watching sports on TV. And we hear arguing, fighting outside. We go right outside our apartment window. This is in Coral Gables, Florida. And we saw a man end his life with his screaming, crying, wailing girlfriend right next to him. Death is always difficult, isn't it? But suicide complicates things with its various emotional tanglements and questions that come up. It's, it's a growing reality. It's a painful reality. What I want you to know this morning is that it's a scriptural reality. In 1 Kings chapter 19, great passage to jot down. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we learn about Elijah. And it says this in 1 Kings 19, 4. But he himself went a day's journey, this is Elijah, into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Saying it is enough. Always the last sentiment of someone who wants to end it. It is enough. Now, Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. What was happening in this story? Some of you may know that in 1 Kings 18, I love this. I believe God gives us a chapter 18 and a chapter 19. And in chapter 18, Elijah was a part of one of the greatest victories of all time. Certainly the greatest victory in his own life. There was sort of the, the battle of the gods, you will, if you will, at Mount Carmel. And fire fell down. And false prophets were killed. And the nation turned to God. It was his high point. It was a mountaintop experience. And like some of us are painfully aware of, mountaintop experiences are often followed by what? By those valleys. What, what, a, what, a, what a summit, what a zenith, what a pinnacle that Elijah was just in chapter 18. But God gives us chapter 19, and we see this story of great pain. And in chapter 19, there's a wicked queen, Queen Jezebel, and she wanted Elijah dead. In fact, she sent a messenger to tell him that she, would, she was going to kill him. She was going to seek his very own death. Elijah got alone and in seclusion and in negative introspection. He thought it's, it's not worth it. This is not, this is not what I want. I don't want this manic life. He's not the only one. Moses and Jonah, Scripture gives us an account of them those guys asking that God would take their lives as well. There is this um, reality that is among us, and it gets us to the, the why question. Why do people do this? If you've been affected by it, you know. Why did he do this? Why did she do this? Why, why did they? And the question is put before us. It's just part of human reasoning to sort of go in two categories. Is, was this the deliberate act of a conscious person or the desperate act of someone that was 
unbalanced. There are seven instances in Scripture of someone actually taking their life. I want to show you this. Certainly, we want to have time to put them all up for you. But here's a list of the seven suicides in Scripture. Abimelech in Judges 9, you'll see that um, he was ashamed. A a woman had hit him in the head with a stone. And I guess he had... uh, you know, chauvinistic tendencies or whatever. He wasn't a woman's liver. And he just had such a sense of shame at his perceived weakness as a man. And he ended his life. Samson, I think a lot of you know, he just, he pulled, the scripture gives us an account of him pulling uh, the temple doors down upon him as he willingly took his own life. Saul in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 31 was so distressed. In fact, I thought of this when I learned years ago, about 18, 19, 20 years ago, the the storyline of saving private Ryan, uh, Saul was so distressed that three of his sons had been killed in battle that he himself fell on his sword. Guess what? The Saul's armor bearer, you got to love that loyalty to, to be able, if we could go back, that'd be great. Somebody's caffeinated up there. But um, Saul's armor, there we go. Saul's armor bearer, um, you got to love loyalty there. He felt so distressed and despondent by Saul that he did the very same thing. In 2 Samuel 17, you see this guy, Ithophel, and he hung himself. He was despondent by circumstances. Relationships were not good. Every relationship that he had imploded around him, and he hung himself. Zimri in 1 Kings 16 uh, committed arson and suicide. He burned his house down right on him. And the most popular one, I'm going to say probably 85 to 90% of you are aware of this story, but Judas sold out 30 pieces of silver, and Scripture tells us he went out and hung himself. Here's what I want to say, so that I am sound theologically, that I'm biblically accurate. There's no instance, I want you to hear this, of the seven, there's no instance where it refers directly to their eternal destiny. Because isn't that really your question? There's the question, but there's the question behind the question. And here's that question. Are they in hell? Is my loved one in hell because they committed suicide? There are several reasons. I've consulted people this week. I've read a lot. But there are several reasons that people decide to end their lives. One is, uh, I'll give you several. One is just a commitment to a common cause. Uh, Religious cults, suicide bombers. Some of you are old enough to remember Jim Jones, a cult leader who took hundreds of people to a place uh, in the South Pacific. And it was a mass suicide. They thought they were doing a good thing uh, together. Same, Same thing with Heaven's Gate in a ultra nice neighborhood in Rancho Santa Fe in North County, San Diego in the late 90s. Suicide bombers, religious cults. There's a commitment to a common cause. For some, it's a love pact. This is uh, love, romantic love or friendship. Romeo and Juliet, Thelma and Louise. Those are fictional stories, but that that represents uh, what happens for some people. It's if if they're going, I want to go too. There is also just the relief of pain. Many instances where someone just is debilitated by an illness or an injury and feel, they just feel like they can't overcome it and they don't want to go on. And there is, in some instances, this is heavy, but in some instances, it's an act of vengeance. Oftentimes, this could be, not always, but could be the case in those who end their lives in front of somebody. I'll show him. I'll show her. I'll show them. 
commitment to a cause, relief of pain, active vengeance, love pack. All those are some reasons that people decide to commit suicide. But listen, far and away, the number one reason people do this is severe depression. Life hurts. I'm lonely. I'm lost. I'm frightened. The only thing I can do is run or numb myself. I've ruined my life. I'm no good now to other people. There are contributing factors to this. Uh, You're aware of just mental illness. Uh, Only a couple of decades ago, you could see comedians. You could see Christian comedians at, at conferences and even in churches make jokes about mental illness and schizophrenia and stuff like that. But it's very real in our day. And I'm glad that as a society, as a church, we're moving forward to understand this. But it's compounded severe depression by mental illness. There are hormonal issues and chemical imbalances that come in, can come into play and psychological and physiological factors. Hypoglycemia, hardening of the arteries, all of these, according to the Mayo Clinic and the New England Journal of Medicine, can be contributing factors to someone deciding that they don't want to live anymore. The question before us today, and the one that I need to most tackle, is the theological one. Is suicide an unforgivable sin? The subject matter is hard and complicated. If it's personal, it's profoundly painful. But the answer really is a simple one. Is suicide an unforgivable sin? There is an instance in Scripture where it talks about a sin being unforgivable. I'm not sure you're aware of this. You can find it, and I recommend to study it later, not now, but later. In Matthew chapter 12, and verse 31 and 32, Jesus expressly says, here's an unforgivable sin. But you need to dig into it to see what it really means. And ultimately, you'll find that it means someone rejecting Christ. Time after time, offer after offer, and someone willfully says no to Jesus. That's the only unforgivable sin. Now let me say this, so as not to soft pedal. At the risk of being misunderstood perhaps, I do want to say, I believe suicide is a sin and a serious sin. It's a direct violation of the seventh commandment. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God where? In your body. It's not your right or mine to play God. As I took your question and studied it a little bit recently, I went to a couple of thinkers, some formative thinkers. They're far smarter than I. But this idea of suicide being an unforgivable sin actually started with Augustine, one of the great profound thinkers. I've got, uh, he's in my library, City of God and Confessions, et cetera, et cetera. But he taught some stuff and then early on, and then um, a Catholic, a, a incredible intellect named Thomas Aquinas, he took it further as he taught that it is necessary to confess sin before you depart this world for the next. And therefore, suicide would be a fatal sin. I can't tackle every thinker and every idea or false idea, but I do want to give you what the scripture teaches about your sin and mine. And I am the pastor and my sins are many. 
And what I'm learning is the key thing that I need to do, and I call you to as well, I'm learning from some of you, is that I need to breathe spiritually throughout the day. I need to confess my own sin in specific manners, receive and appropriate God's forgiveness and exhale and just take it in and, and, and breathe it out and realize that confession and repentance, a change of mind, is vital in dealing with my own sin. Look at this passage in Romans chapter 5 because it's so true. It's empirically true. You see it in your life. This is uh, two chapters before Paul would say the following, before Paul would say, hey, the things I don't do, those things that I want to do, I'm not doing them. The things that I don't want to do, I'm doing those things. The, oh, wretched am I. And here prior to that, he's getting ready as he's teaching himself. Sometimes when you're teaching or preaching, you're, you're teaching yourself, aren't you? Now the law came in to increase the trespass. It shows us. Just break out the Ten Commandments. Break out the law and you see where you and I, our lives are at variance. Our, our lives are at odds. The, our sin separates us from God. But look what he says. Great idea. But where sin increased, say it with me, church, grace abounded all the more. Look with me, if you will, at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's a good baptism passage, isn't it? Just the symbolism there. Your your salvation, listen to me, church, your salvation is not tied to anything that you do or don't do. Good news, isn't it? It's good news. It, it's, not, it's not on the basis of deeds that you've done in righteousness. And in a social media age, we like to do good deeds in righteousness and tell people about it, right? I mean, it, 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 did you even do it if you don't post it? And we love our deeds of righteousness. We can get sort of passive aggressive. with We want people to know about our deeds of righteousness. But Isaiah says, in really graphic language, it's kind of ugly, but he says, it's like your righteousness is what? It's like filthy garments. You don't want me to preach that. But it's ugly. And that's our righteous, very graphic picture. And that is our right. It's not based on anything that you do or don't do. It is what Jesus has done. And the first sermon we preached in this beautiful sanctuary, March 30th of 2014, was anybody remember? It was Romans 8. There there is therefore now no more condemnation. In your head and in mine, there's a lot of condemnation. We, we have, as one writer says, we got a chatterbox going on. And some estimate that 90% of what's set up here is very, very negative. And the gospel is this. It is very good news and it is very freeing. I don't know what to make with all of our religiosity and all the, the ways that we are perceived in the world. But I do know that this is very, very, very good news. And this gospel liberates There is therefore no more condemnation. Romans 8, 38 to 39. Hey, there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. Paul mentions this and that and this and that. There is nothing that separates us. I believe that is true. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. Despite what some other great intellectual thinkers have said and propagated. Despite what some people have gotten into. And I don't help me with this if you will. Because I want to understand you as I take these questions. I think for some of us, you heard this when you were little, right? Some, is this right? I mean, someone told you when you were little that you, you commit suicide, you go to hell. Is that 
fair to say? Anybody nodding with me? Um, okay, I'm nodding with me because I think somewhere along the way in the back of my memory bank, I heard that. And it sounds good, doesn't it? Because it, isn't that what a parent or somebody wants to do? It'd be good for a preacher to do that. To what? To fear monger and scare people. But I want to tell you where sin abounds, grace superabounds. There is no more condemnation. Here's what speaks loudly beyond any cultural trapping or unbiblical idea. And listen to me, I, I've known of churches that refuse to do a funeral or a cemetery that will not allow a burial. Can I tell you that's so unbiblical. That lacks so much dignity. And I believe is an affront to God. Because what is true and what we always want to preach is a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb. And that, whew, and that is the greatest. And it covers any and every sin. You ever heard a promotion on TV, radio, or whatever, and it says, void were prohibited, exclusions may apply. There's like 16 of those things they throw, at the, and it's the fine print, you know. There are no exclusions. There's nowhere you can go where that is void or prohibited. That's the good news of the gospel. So there's the question. But I think as we begin to round toward home, I want to give you a few things. Uh, I'd love for you to turn. If you have a, a black Bible, it's complimentary if you don't have a study Bible, but all of you have one around you probably, and you can turn to Psalm 46.1, and it's on page 471, Psalm 46.1, page 471. I'm telling you to turn there later in the sermon, so don't freak out and start looking at your watches, okay? But the question I want to turn, I did it last week, I'm good at this, but your question I've answered directly, and I think biblically, separating what's biblical and what's cultural. But I think the real question that the church ought to ask is what do we do? In light of this, do you hear me? In light of this growing reality, what do we do? And if you've lost someone to suicide, or if you've been to a funeral of someone who's committed suicide, you know that you'll never, ever forget it. You'll never be the same. It's a twofold question. What do we do? What do we do for support to those who are hurting? And what do we do in the way of prevention? I want to suggest four things. All biblical ideas. The first is to embrace the sorrow. Embrace the sorrow. Feel the feeling. I'm not asking any introvert to become an extrovert. We can't have all people like me, right? Nobody would get a word in edgewise. Too many opinions would be shared. It'd be ugly. I'm not asking someone who's not naturally expressive to start crying on a dime, popping off with anger, being somebody that they're not. I, I believe that stuff's coded in your DNA. Like we got three kids, they're all different. The first one's old enough, he says to the other kids, I make the rules. The middle kid says, I'm the reason you have rules. And the third kid says, the rules don't apply to me. <laughs> they're all different, aren't they? All these children, if you have multiple kids, they're, they're different. And stuff is it's put in their DNA early on. But whether you're a feeler like I am or not, I'm asking you to embrace the sorrow. There's a theology of tears in the Bible, and they're really important. Feel the feeling. I want to show you a picture. 
Here's a mom and a little baby girl. Last night at 6.30 on a beautiful farm outside of Shreveport, I did a wedding. I did the wedding of that little girl who's now a beautiful woman. Looks an awful lot like her mama. And many, many years ago, on Christmas Eve, when that little girl was a little bit bigger, that mama, she left the house on Christmas Eve to go get something for the family. And the car struck her and killed her. At the wedding this weekend, you could imagine the sentiment and the love and the loss that enveloped the room on rehearsal dinner night. And to see this family, to see them, and to see this picture, it was an outdoor wedding. There was a bride and a groom, and get this, there was a drone. How cool is that? There was a drone just fluttering around taking pictures, freaking me out. It was getting close to my head at times, like, you know. I've, I've read where Amazon is going to start delivering packages by drone. Is this right? Who's going to regulate this stuff? I mean, there are terrorists out there. Sorry, I'm fear-mongering. I'm just curious. I'm just curious. I mean, I hope there's some regulatory things because we hadn't done well with the Internet, right? Now we got drones. And there was a drone flying around. This beautiful. We stood under this stately oak tree, elegant surroundings on a hillside with a lake. There were longhorns out there. Good thing Jackie Sherrill wasn't around. But they were like Texas longhorns uh, walking around. And we were doing this wedding. And when, you, when, the, when the parties come up, they see a picture of that mama. Now, her dad has gone on to marry a beautiful woman. They've had another child and great folks. But next to that picture was a passage, 1 Corinthians 5, 3. Though I'm not physically present with you, I'm here in spirit. And it was an invitation to do what I'm telling you today, to embrace the sorrow. Here's what the scripture says. Let me say what it doesn't say. Then I'll tell you what it says. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, pretend it doesn't hurt. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, pretend it doesn't hurt. Embrace the feeling. Embrace the sorrow. Feel the feeling. There's a time to dance. I did that last night at the wedding. There's a time to mourn. Jesus, the greatest sermon ever preached by far. First thought, blessed are those who mourn. James chapter 5 and verse 10. Be miserable and mourn. Let your laughter be turned into weeping. How's that for a Debbie Downer passage? But there's something to be said for one who knows how to mourn. And the invitation for us, I hope you're in a small group. Find a group or form your own group. We can help you do that. And get in a circle with people. And as you share life together, you'll do more than study. You'll learn to serve and get outside of that circle. You'll learn over time to appropriately share about your life. To progressively share life with other people. And that will involve some real highs. You'll rejoice with people. They'll have babies and you'll have to come to the hospital. They'll have loss and you'll be there. But Romans 12 is true and y'all, it's a beautiful thing. And the church does it like no other. And I pray that we will rejoice with those who rejoice and weep, mourn with those who mourn. When I was little, we would play the quiet game on car trips, road trips. Why do you think my parents wanted me to play the quiet game? That's what I expected from y'all. Where's the love? I mean, is there any love, y'all? They would frequently play the quiet game because my sister was loud. And, you know, there was a point where I was like in protest. I, I don't, I don't want to play the quiet game. Do you really win for being, is that winning? 
Who wins when I'm quiet? But some of us think, be quiet. But some of us think, some of us think there's a winning to being quiet. And it's just not good. You're playing a game. You're playing the quiet game. And it's suppression and it's unhealthy. And it doesn't honor people around you. Embrace, embrace the sorrow. Secondly, I want to say practice forgiveness. Counselors know this, those who are in the battle. And if you've lost someone to this, you'll never, ever be the same. And by the way, stop telling people to be the same after this. Don't ever say they're back to normal after this. Don't ever say that. In fact, if you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Just be with them. Practice forgiveness. Because the complications are many-fold, but they're very real. Among them is just the guilt. The shame, the embarrassment, played this out. How many brothers do you have? How many brothers and sisters do you have? Three. Well, two now. One died. What happened? There's that embarrassment. The shame, the shame of the cause of death. The fear of the fallout. The grief of loss. The guilt of what could we have done the embarrassment of that awkwardness that just doesn't end. And for some of you this morning, I want to say, learn to forgive. Learn to forgive and learn to forgive yourself. Ephesians 4.32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You forgive for two reasons. Number one, you've been forgiven. And number two, you're going to need forgiveness. Man, give it up. Give up that forgiveness and give it to them. And give it to yourself. Practice forgiveness. Third thing, invest and invite others into community. I learned that a few months ago, hear this, a few months ago, there was a suicide note on the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge, one of the most beautiful pieces of real estate in the whole world. It's the second most popular place in the world for people to take their lives. And there was a note written by an anonymous person who parked their car a good way from the bridge and walked. And in the note, part of what it said is, if one person smiles at me on the way, I won't jump. And I want to say to you, you know, churches, we talk a lot. We, we, we compare and contrast. We act like we don't, but we do. Is it an auditorium or is it a sanctuary? Is it loud or is it soft? Is it hymns or is it praise choruses? Uh, how do they use the visuals and the media and the screens? And sometimes churches get all amped up. I'm not being critical of anybody. I'm just saying sometimes we get amped up and we think it's about our excellence. But this is the one thing, according to Jesus, according to Jesus who said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. This is the one thing that the church can offer the world is the right kind of community. Invest and invite others. And in a room this size with a bunch of people, I want to say to you that for some of you, there could be a chance in the future where you could really, really help someone at the very last minute. And I would say, do not be afraid to break a confidence. Do not be afraid to call 911. Do not be afraid to literally lead them to medical help. Because this is a real problem, and it's a growing problem. The statistics, I just shared a few, are quite staggering. Invest, invite others into the community, and lastly, be a hospital of hope. 
as a pastor, sometimes I, I get gifts from you. Uh, not enough, but... I'm, But sometimes people give me stuff and I don't even get it. Um, friends of mine uh, over here several years ago, right? Uh, it was about four years ago. They gave me this. And I don't really know what that means other than I might be a headless preacher. I mean, how do you, how do you interpret that? There's no skull, no cranium. Um, I guess they're just saying, think, think a little more, pastor. <laughs> but I was given this. And there's another, another gift I was given it was a bullet. After church one day, it's a 38, I believe. I'm not a gun guy. The guy gave me a bullet and he said, I was going to put this in my head this week. But today showed me that there is a God and there is hope. And can I say to you, he is right. He is so right. Look down at Psalm 46 and verse 1. We put it up. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Sorry, I read from the NIV and most of you are looking at the ESV. He's our refuge and our strength. Notice that last part, an ever-present help in time of trouble. What's the number one most frequently given promise in the Bible? Do you know? I will be with you. All throughout. God says that more than anything else. I am with you or I will be with you. Starting from the beginning. Remember Abraham, drop everything that you know that's familiar in your life and go somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where to go exactly. But I will be with you. When Jesus was born, he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus gave a promise to his disciples who who he knew would be heartbroken, sorrowful, and confused. And he said to them, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word there is paraclete. If you're in law, you know, in in the legal world, there's a a paralegal. Uh, If you're crazy enough to jump out of a plane, you'll hopefully use a parachute. And the idea there is that it's someone or something that comes alongside of you. I will be with you. The very language itself to the personhood of the Trinity, the triune, three-in-one God. God wants to teach you and I that he will be with us. He can be for you an ever-present help in time of trouble. If you would cue up a clip here, and I want to show you something that maybe our young people have never seen. Here's a guy named Derek Redmond. He's British, and in 1992 at the Barcelona Olympics, he was favored to win the 400 meters. And you'll notice in a second, though highly favored with so much at stake, he's going to grab his hamstring in great and severe pain. Can you imagine the training, the years that went into preparation for this one moment? And you see him fall down and you see that what's physical is now becoming very emotional. And what happens next is really a beautiful picture. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish. Isn't that great? I'm going to finish. Now notice, out of nowhere comes a man from the stands. Do you see that guy try to keep him back? And it's not just a man. This is his, this is his father. 
who comes alongside his son and says, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. And he realizes that son is going to do it anyway. And watch this guy. Don't come between a man and his father. Look at him. He says, you'll have to leave. Who knows what that dad said. (laughs) I didn't read his lips, but he said something along the lines of, it's my boy. I'm going to be an ever-present help in his time of trouble. You have a heavenly father who will run with you, walk with you. He'll shoo the enemy away. And desires that nothing would get in the way of your love, his love for you. And that's a father. The love of a father. He's an ever-present help in time of need. Our team's going to come up and begin to lead us as we close. Last week, I was with a good friend. I love the guy. I just admire him so much. He and I are becoming big buddies. We went running together this week. On the, on a, on, we did a long run. And he and the other guys left me on this hill right here. Isn't that sad? <laughs> just left me. Ryan Willis stayed back. He's a good and godly man. Ryan is. <laughs> but the other guys, Nick Crawford, Jeff Hightower, some of the others, they just left me because they're faster and in better shape. They left me on the hill. But one of these guys I ran with, and I just love these guys. And this one guy told me last week in my truck, he was getting out of my truck, and he said, hey, preacher, pastor, I'm not one to go down front and pray. But I want you to pray for me because I've got some needs in my life. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Let's not be afraid to be prayed for. And today as we begin to close in our worship service, we're going to pray. And today I want you to be obedient. Most of us will just stand and we'll sing and we'll offer up this worship to God. But for some who maybe today you want to say, God, I need this. I need you to be the father that comes alongside me because I started out running and I'm hurting. And I, I, I don't even know if I can finish. And you need to be prayed for that you could encompass and experience the love of the father who's a very present help in time of need. Maybe today you want to come and pray with someone and just say, hey, I just, I just want to thank God that he has been for me an ever-present help in time of need. We'll be down front, a few of us, and uh, we have some people in the back and maybe even in the balcony, I understand. And this is not for show or anything. This is just an opportunity to pray for each other and to use this moment. Don't leave. This is, I believe, a high moment, a holy calling. Let's reserve it for God, for God to do a work in our midst. And I pray that we would experience his healing, that he is an ever-present father of love in our lives and we could extend it to people that are hurting and there is hurt in this room there is hurt he can be our help would you stand let's amen you know i think one of the best decisions we've made since we started this church is this year 
we've brought on staff a part-time counselor that's here on Mondays and available to you or anyone you know that might need that. And in light of the, the teaching today, I thought it'd be important to mention that to you if you don't know that, but it's available to you um, on Mondays here at the church. So if you'd like information on that, you can look on our website or you can come see one of us and we'll be glad to give you an opportunity to, uh, to use a licensed uh, counselor uh, if that's where you are in life. A couple of things before we go. This Wednesday night, we have a great opportunity to come together as a church and worship together. We've been planning this worship night uh, all semester, and we're excited about it. Uh, if your small group meets uh, that night, we want to ask you to consider coming as a group and worshiping together. But it gives us an opportunity to worship um, without constricted time, and we're really excited what God will do here in this place on Wednesday night. Also, if you are a new parent and you need a child dedicated, never have done that with your children. On Mother's Day, May the 10th, we'll be doing that. If you'll let Emily know or come up to one of us, we'll give you some instructions on that. We'd love for you to consider that. And next week, as we look toward the next sermon in this series, the question will be, what about those who have never heard about Jesus Christ? So I think it'll be a really, really interesting time for us to get together and uh, hear Robert's teaching on that. We thank you so much that you've come today. We love you. Y'all have a great week.